This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Struer, and I'm bringing you today episode 125. Can you imagine going to school with no electricity or quitting your job at Google to move to Uganda? Today's guest took a sabbatical from working for Google and ad sales to move to Uganda, and he had a vision to bring light to rural communities without electricity. Jay Patel is a social entrepreneur who co-founded two startups, Enlight Institute, which provides solar recruitment and training for companies that are hiring rural youth, and Village Energy, which does last mile solar distribution to communities that are off the grid. You'll hear about both of these more in today's episode. Jay also talks about his personal and professional journey that led him to Uganda and then through launching, growing, and evolving these organizations he founded. At the end of the conversation, we go deep into acts of love and good that power the world and trauma healing. I hope you love my conversation with Jay. Jay, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. I am so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much, Kristen. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Jay, you are a social entrepreneur who you started your career in Google ad sales. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And quit your job and moved to Uganda. Yes. <laughs> Tell me more. All right. Uh, where do I begin? So, you know, in university, I studied economic development. Um, I did some work in microfinance and so I was very involved in the social entrepreneurship space. And then after I graduated from college. I did a summer program um, where I was based at uh, doing social impact consulting over the summer in Boston. And then I did City Year, which is this AmeriCorps program where I was working in uh, Queens Public School uh, for a year, um, working with like elementary school students in low-income communities. And so I had very much kind of built up a repertoire around economic development, social impact. And then I ended up going all the way to the other side and joining Google as an advertising uh, analyst slash account strategist. So going to Google was actually like the big shift for me. Uh, and then I found myself working for, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the world, um, you know, and, and, and working on advertising clients living in San Francisco. So it was very much like a, a, the dream for many people at that time was to join like a tech company like Google and, and live that, you know, 20 something life. And it was amazing, but I definitely got to the point where I was like, what am I really doing here? And what do I really want out of my career? And, and, and how can I find more meaning in what I'm trying to do? So that's what kind of sparked me to start to look at Uganda. Okay, before you go with that, tell me more about your city year experience. City year. So we were placed into teams of 10 people and it really was diverse. Like I would, say, I would actually probably say it's the most diverse uh, team I've ever been on because it included any, anywhere from people who had just graduated high school uh, to somebody who was a couple of years out of college. They would be the, the team leader. And, and, and people who had taken time off, um, really diverse in terms of gender, race, socioeconomic status, background. So you, again, had Ivy League students working on the same team as youth who had just graduated from high schools in the same communities where we were now being placed. And so every school, there were at, at that time, there were about 20 schools across uh, the four out of the five boroughs of New York City. And now there's about 30 schools and we were in an elementary school and 
yeah, it, it was just like just the dynamics of working together as a team was one of the biggest challenges, but also I think one of the biggest um, accomplishments was how do we together figure out how we're going to support these kids and, and tolerate each other for a whole year. <laughs> now, you were, were you teaching in the school or were you like a extracurricular so, kind of support person? So we were never the teacher. So okay. during the school day, we would be like in the classroom um, and like supporting the teacher. And then after school, we would go to this after school program, we would help on the program. Now, our school is a very unique, I don't even think we still work in our school anymore. And that because the previous year, that team had a fairly bad relationship with administration that kind of soured things a bit, we weren't allowed mm-hmm. to do one-on-one tutoring, which is the real like bread and butter of the city year model. And so instead we were confined to working with kids in groups. So for example, like I would work with this Yemeni kid in fourth grade, he was an um, immigrant and he didn't speak English. So I would sit in the back and actually read Dr. Seuss books with him. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other side, we had a few students who are gifted. And so, or at least like on the track to being a gifted program. And so <clears throat> I'd be reading more advanced materials with them you know, in the hallway. And so just trying to support the teacher to help you know, manage the classroom. Um, I think 99% of the school's population were people of color. Um, so it was... Um, a lot of different, and, and many, most of those came from some fairly big projects in Queens, um, including the famous Queensbridge projects, which I think is the largest um, housing development in the country. Hmm. And so you had kids who were coming in with a lot of challenges at home. You had kids who were coming in with undiagnosed learning challenges. And so how, how can one teacher possibly handle all of these different um, uh, reading levels and math levels and behavioral differences, um, at once. And so that's why we were there. Got it. That's really cool. That sounds like a really neat experience. Yeah. My favorite thing was we did something called, um, bringing books to life, which I'm really sad they don't have it anymore, but basically we would, um, every week would be a different country or region of the world. And we would choose a picture book with a story from that region or about that region. And then we would design like a full hour experience where we talk about the country and its people and its culture. Then we'd read the book, which would illustrate some concepts. And then we would do an activity based on that. So an example of this was um, we read a book uh, about Northern Ireland and talking about a girl and her day walking to school. Um, I think she was Catholic and she was facing where, where her elders were really anti-Protestant and she was facing discrimination from Protestant kids and how do you manage that? And so we talked about the experience of there. And then um, in Ireland, they have these peace walls where people write messages of hope and peace on the walls that divide the different communities. And we did one within the school. And so kids really engaged with that. That's really cool. I wanna do that for my kids. Can you give me, can you package up what you did? <laughs> I feel like this is this is like a sellable concept, right? I feel like schools would use something like this. Yeah, actually, my favorite one we ever did was um, this around the time that Slumdog Millionaire had come out. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and the kids love to dance. In fact, every morning before the start of school, we would actually do like some dances up on stage while the kids were still assembling um, to keep them busy and engaged and they loved it. So we actually did a story in India and then we ended up teaching like, my teammate and I ended up choreographing us a simplified version of the dance at the end of the Slumdog Millionaire movie and teaching it. And even though we only taught it to like the third through fifth graders, by the end of the year, every kid in the school knew it. That's so cool. I love that. I wonder if they're still dancing to that. What year was this? This was 2009 to 2010. Okay. All right. Maybe they're still dancing to it. Maybe your legacy lives on. I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent positive that that is the only thing they're going to remember about me. (laughs) That's awesome. That's really cool. That's I've, I've heard of city year and that sounds like a really life-changing opportunity. Yeah, it's, it was, I'm really, really glad I did it. Um, I I don't wish wish to do it again. Uh, I, my hat's (laughs) off to all the teachers and everybody who has to work, you know, who works in public schools because it's, it's a, it's, real, real challenge, but, um, it was an incredible experience in many ways. Okay. So 
let's go back to your story. So you moved to Uganda, but maybe you should tell me why you, why you ended up in Uganda. Why not? It's such a great country. Um, it is a great country. So basically around like 2012, I was really in like a bit of a funk where I was like trying to figure out like, okay, where's my career going? Where's my life going, et cetera. And, you know, the truth is, is that this sort of like careerism never stops. Even if you think you get to a company like Google or some of these other, you know, Facebook or wherever, like there's still people who are climbing the ladder in there. And, you know, jumping from position to position. And, and, and so you kind of get it, like, am I the person who's kind of being left, you know, left behind while my peers are rising or et cetera. So I think it's easy to, to fall into this malaise, no matter what company you find yourself in. And so I was kind of at this point, like, well, what do I really want? And I remember I actually, I still have a picture of this, but I went to a whiteboard and I've drawn this kind of, I've seen it later as a Venn diagram, um, but basically looking at like, write down, like, what are your interests just from like a intellectual perspective? Like when you read news online or articles or books, like what are the topics that attract you? Um, what are you good at? Um, and um, you know, what does the world need and um, how can you make money doing it or something like that? So I ended up doing like a version of that where I just kind of looked at like, okay, like what is, you know, like, what are my interests? You know, I was interested in like clean energy, transportation. I've always been interested in the climate, mass transit, urban planning, things like that. Um, what am I good at? So what are kind of my skill sets? I very much enjoy talking to people. I really like business development kind of things, even if I don't always do it in my current job. I do like a bit of data analysis, but I don't want it to be my full-time job. And then what are sort of the team environments? Like, I really want something that's like more startup-y, more like people wearing different hats, uh, more fluid and where you have a strong sense of like team and working together. And so I was like, okay, I need to find a role that kind of fits, you know, these different buckets. And so I ended up getting involved. Um, I ended up going to this talk actually that was given by somebody who worked for Ashoka and uh, I forget her name, but um, she had just, re she had recently written a book about her experience um, working with Ashoka fellows uh, you know Ashoka, right? I do, but maybe you can explain it for somebody who may be listening that doesn't know Ashoka. Oh, yeah. So they are a entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship organization based in Washington, D.C. It was started by uh, this man named Bill Drayton, who was a former EPA administrator, I believe. And they actually coined the term social entrepreneurship. And so Ashoka finds amazing social entrepreneurs around the world and essentially gives them like a two-year living stipend that basically allows them to focus on building the organization rather than like, hey, am I gonna be able to put food on the table? Um, and so in many cases allows them to be able to quit their side hustle or whatever they were doing to make income to really focus on what they're really passionate about. And so they, I think there's like thousands of fellows around the world today. Uh, and there's many, many other organizations, but they're in many ways the original one. And they had gotten funding from a lot of the a Silicon Valley elite over the years. And so there was a relationship between Ashoka and Google. And so I kind of stepped in and started organizing events for Ashoka fellows to come to Google's campus to speak. Um, if they ever needed help with something like, oh, some, I need to read somebody on the Google Maps team about something. I would try to find somebody within Google I could connect them to. And through that process over like about a year and a half, um, that's when I started to develop an interest in Uganda. And it's actually funny going back to my city experience because the reason I got pulled into that Ashoka relationship in the first place was through somebody who had also done Sidier, which is how he and I got, ended up getting connected. So Sidier yeah. in some ways led to the Ashoka experience, which then That's led, cool. yeah. And I think it got to the point where I was like, okay, well, I kind of want to do something in this space. And I had kind of developed an interest in clean energy because you know, clean energy, energy access. Um, I mean, how much do you know about the energy access space? Or how much does your readership know? Maybe, maybe enough to be dangerous. Maybe enough to so be dangerous. <laughs> so maybe, maybe give, give some background on it. Around the world, and I guess these stats are slightly, maybe slightly dated from a few years ago, but we still have about a billion people around the world who do not have access to energy. And 
at this point, a majority of those people live in on the African continent. And so, you know, taking a step back, what does it mean to not have access to energy, um, to electricity specifically? So that means that you're probably, you know, using kerosene lanterns in order uh, to light your home. So mm -hmm. that means you're breathing in toxic fumes and indoor air pollution kills 4 million people a year. Um, your eyesight's probably going bad because you're reading by essentially candlelight. Um, there's risks of fires, accidental ingestion by babies of kerosene. Uh, and it's also really expensive. And so it's, it's just horrible in every possible way. And is also one of the pound for pound, one of the worst sources of carbon emissions. Um, but, you know, even going beyond that, I mean, you know, in Uganda and other countries in Africa, people are giving birth by candlelight. They don't have access to vaccines. They don't have access to, um, you know, necessary medical equipment in case um, their child needs support. And so that contributes to higher infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates. Um, schools can't offer classes at night. You have security issues. So like energy really affects almost every possible socioeconomic indicator you can think of. Mm -hmm. And um, it was something where, you know, coming from the private sector background, it was something where there was a growing industry in now all across Africa and beyond, but East Africa was a specific hub. And so Google, it turned out, actually had a project in this space um, out of their Kenya office. And so I basically went to my boss and convinced them to give me a three month leave of absence to go out to Kenya and see if I could talk my way onto this team. I love it. That's amazing. And that didn't work. <laughs> they, <laughs> okay. They were not hiring um, at the time, but they did say, hey, you know, go out, get some experience in the space and come back to us in a few months when we figure stuff out. And so when I got to Kenya, I'd never been to the African continent before. Uh, but when I got to Kenya, I, I just found a place to stay for like uh, about six weeks. And there was a conference that week where a bunch of solar companies were coming to Kenya. And so I just ended up dusting off my resume and going to it. And I just started meeting with the different companies. And I, a couple of them were like, yeah, come to Tanzania or interviewing, come to Uganda. And to be honest, actually at that point, Uganda had not even been on my radar at all. I knew very little about that country, but I just decided to book like a, a, a ticket, like literally the next day, it's like about an hour flight. And so I ended up just going uh, to Uganda and to meet with a couple of these companies um, that were hiring. And all these companies, you know, take a step back. So they had started with making these small little solar lanterns. So now you can buy them as cheap as $5 and they fit in the palm of your hand. And if you charge them, they can provide light for you know, up to 24 hours. And you know, so that's kind of like the, the, the bottom of the pyramid. That's what this product's meant for. And now these companies are getting into home systems. Um, so like three lights and phone charging, offering TVs, fans for the equivalent of like a couple hundred dollars through this thing called um, pay-as-you-go. So essentially, um, for, the, for anyone who doesn't know, um, in Africa, mobile money has become really, really big and you don't even need a smartphone. So essentially, even just using a simple flip phone, you can create your own little bank account through the telecom provider and which you can send and receive money. It's almost like Venmo, except you can just do it through um, a dumb phone. And so that's taken off across the continent. So now people don't even have bank accounts, they don't have electricity, but they have a phone. And so they can actually send in payments for things. So you can literally give a farmer a loan for a system in which they can actually text in their payments. And then in return, they get a code that they can use to unlock their machine for a few additional days at a time. And then after a year, you've paid enough money to completely unlock the system. And then it's yours for the remainder of the lifetime of the system. That's awesome. So... Yeah, so that so I ended up going to Uganda and actually through Ashoka, I had separately gotten an introduction um, to what became my co-founder. His name is Abu Musuza. He uh, had worked for Ashoka for, in Kenya for six years. Then he had started a company called Village Energy with an Israeli-American uh, named Roy Rosenblith. And so they, in 2008, 
And so they tried to build a solar business in Uganda together. And then Rowie ended up moving back to the United States. He now works for Tesla, runs their commercial solar division out of their DC office. But Abu, who is you know, Ugandan and, and is really committed to keeping this vision going, wanted to keep going. So he developed this new model around training solar technicians to do repairs. And so um, one of the people I had known from Ashoka had connected to me to him months before and said, oh, you should talk to Abu, he's working in solar. And so when I was coming to Uganda, I just sent Abu an email, hey, I heard you work in solar, we've been trying to connect, let's just meet for coffee. And what I thought would be a 30 minute conversation turned into a three hour conversation that ended in me saying, I wanna come work for you. And his reply was, well, I can't afford to pay you anything. Um, and I said, that's fine. I'm still on leave from Google from an, for another couple months. So I'll just help you. And then one thing led to another and uh, we ended up getting funding and I ended up basically moving to Uganda like two months later. Well, I did have the privilege of meeting Abu when I was there a few in March and he is an amazing, amazing leader and person. So I, I can, I can attest to your, uh, how highly you speak of him. So you basically take Village Energy to the next level through this funding. Yeah, so he was applying for Echo and Green at the time. And then we were also applying for this accelerator program called Spring Accelerator, which was funded by um, the UK government and a few foundations that was trying to focus on uh, solutions that impact the lives of adolescent girls either through products and services for them or ways for them to get trained so that they can become like productive uh, entrepreneurs or employees in this value chain. And so we ended up getting that at the last minute too. So I got to Uganda uh, full-time in May of 2015. And I thought, okay, I'll be here for at least a few months and then we'll just see what happens. And then in June, July, we ended up getting this funding. And so that funded us for their first year. And so Village Energy started as a distributor. Yes. So it's gone through a few different permutations. The first phase was developing its own solar, our own solar lighting system, which we did in like 2008, 2009. And that never really took off. It's really hard to build a manufacturing base in Uganda. Nowadays, most things are imported from places like China, just because it's cheaper and you can do a lot better quality control. And so that that proved really difficult. Instead, we ended up installing solar systems around the country and had a few bank partnerships to help finance that. And that was around 2010 to 2000, let's say 13, 2014. And we installed a few thousand systems and we ran into a lot of issues, um, especially with people's systems breaking down, uh, people not paying their loans and you you get into three-way fights with the bank and the person who claims that, uh, oh, we, you know, the system isn't working even though they misuse the system. And so they're not gonna pay their loan and the bank is coming to us. So there were a lot of issues that ended up happening there but a lot of learnings as well. And one of the things we noticed was that when system breaks down and can't be fixed, that actually ends up disincentivizing the rest of the community to invest in solar. So risk giving people bad reputation because at the end of the day, it's very, very difficult to service systems remotely. And so most companies, they just install and then they say, okay, if you have an issue, bring the system back to you know, our headquarters, which could be you know, all the way back in the capital um, mm-hmm. or, and there's just not qualified people out there who can come easily. And that ends up being a real bottleneck for a lot of people who have issues with their system. Tell me a little bit about something that you saw when in a community where you did install the solar, like how did, how did the community change? It's really transformational. I think at the end of the day, the, the biggest is lighting and lighting just, it just transforms everything. You know, and I did, and we end up doing a lot of installations for schools because what you find in these communities is education is the top priority for so many of these families. Um, they will go without shoes in order to be able to afford school fees. Um, and so being able to provide lighting for schools, for the students, 
Um, it, that's really the first step. And I, I don't have like a story at hand of like a particular person. I know there's so many um, that they're all blurring in my mind, but that really, that really starts to change lives um, mm-hmm. starting with schools. Yeah. Um, and so we knew there was potential out there. People love it once they have it. The, the question was, how do we do so in a sustainable way? And so long story short, through the accelerator program, we ended up having changing our business model around launching these solar shops in rural areas and so to be like a one-stop shop. So you can go there for your small little uh, solar lantern, but if you want like a larger installation, they're there too. And there's somebody that's in your community who can sell you the system. And if you need a technician, we'll get that. And so we got this funding, we launched, and honestly, we overexpanded. And mm-hmm. I think we tried to do too much at once because we were launching these solar kiosks at the same time that we also had this micro entrepreneur pilot for girls um, where they would essentially get a solar system and they would do phone charging. And basically people would pay them to charge their phone. And then that money would help to be used to pay off the system. So we had that at the same time. And in a very short period of time, we basically got very, very overextended and um, we're not making enough revenue to meet our costs. And Mm -hmm. so it was a very painful process of basically closing down a lot of places and really focusing on a few hubs. And your revenue was coming in specifically from the solar installation? Yeah, but it just really was not working out very well. And um, we ended up getting a grant from the USAID to, to help keep us going. Um, otherwise we probably would have gone under, but I think we were, it, it bought us time to figure out like, how can we do things a little bit more sustainably? And so that led to us doing a few different things, but long story short, we ended up focusing on a business model uh, around productive use of energy. And for a couple of reasons, I think number one, because our forte has always been having technical staff available in rural communities. And for a lot of the biggest companies that were still really focused on selling, you know, smaller home systems at scale, where those products aren't as complex. Um, if something breaks, you can, you know, swap it out. That doesn't necessarily need that level of service, but if you're going to customize a solar installation for a health clinic or a school or a business to power like, 20 lights, three TVs, five laptops, um, you know, it, everything needs to be customized. And so we basically ended up developing a model that involves, you know, having trained technicians scattered around the country. We not only do the sizing in the installation, but we also provide maintenance visits every year. Um, mm-hmm. And we also have remote monitoring. So our team at headquarters can plot whether the system in this very remote rural community, um, what's the energy usage is on a real-time basis. And if there's any issues, we can call them up and say, hey, we're noticing a spike. You know, you should, you know, do this, this, and this. Um, or, you know, somebody tried to plug a flat iron in and it's going to blow the system. It's like, don't do that. So, um, and if necessary, we can send somebody out there. Okay. So that's where the model is now. Yes. Okay. Wow. And that's quite a learning journey. It has been. Now our big focus is, you know, we don't do our own financing. We, um, we actually work with banks um, okay. to provide the financing um, because I think a lot of solar companies have realized that the credit game is really, really difficult. It's a, it's its own okay. business model um, trying to provide mm-hmm. credit. But at the same time, if you don't provide credit, um, your customer base is very, very tiny. There isn't a lot of uh, purchasing power that can pay cash. Yeah. Especially in these communities that you're working in. Exactly. So, you know, we're slowly getting there and, and we're going to be doing a fundraising round soon, but, um, I do think the opportunity is massive. I mean, one thing that we were stunned by, we did this pilot where we installed solar powered fridges with small kiosks around the country and then surveyed them, not just on, um, the technical aspects, of whether the fridges were working, but also like what was they doing in terms of income? And we saw triple digit increases in revenue. Like people were not only 
making over double the income after having the system for a year, but they were able to offer more products like fresh fruits, vegetables, dairy products they weren't able to do before. And so it's stunning actually what, um, how uh, energy can really help not only the business itself, but also um, their customers. Wow. That's amazing. So how many did you, how many of those fridges did you install? We installed like 40. Okay. And now and they're still in, in use. Most of them are still in use. Yeah. Okay. In fact, many of them are like, can we buy more? Um, and we're, we've been in the process of importing those uh, new fridges um, to push the expansion. COVID kind of disrupted almost everything. Like the entire sure. country was on lockdown for almost two years. Um, uh, yeah, it was tough. Um, schools were among our business, biggest customers. And then Uganda schools were shut down from March of 2020 until this January. That's a long time. Now we're in the process of just uh, getting back up with, uh, with our, our sales and distribution. But yeah, that's that is, refrigeration is one of the biggest opportunities we see. Interesting. I never would have guessed that. That's, that's great. Yeah. So you eventually transitioned out of your role at Village Energy, right? Yes. So a lot of things happened at the same time. Okay. So number one. That always works, right? Yeah. Uh, so number one, Abu and I both moved to the board um, when we hired our new CEO in September of 2018, Roringa Matindi. So Abu is the only one of us who's an Ekun Green Fellow, but all three of us are Acumen Fellows, which is a different fellowship program. Unfortunately, it doesn't come with any funding, at least not immediately, but um, it's an incredible organization. And the fellowship program that we went through in East Africa was transformational in terms of leadership development. Um, and I can talk about Acumen more uh, later if you'd like, but uh, we ended up hiring Oringa who was an Acumen fellow. So she's Kenyan, but she had been living in Uganda for a few years and she took over CEO. And so she had a huge learning curve as herself, but um, you know, she's now run the team for almost four years and, and, and she's just incredible. And um is it's now her company now. Um, so that was happening. And, and it is really interesting, you know, to, for me, but especially for Abu, because he had been CEO for 10 years to, you know, be willing to let go of his baby because we realized that, you know, it was, the, it was time for somebody else to come in um, who could take this company to the next level. And um, so that was a big transition. At the same time, we had another project that I hadn't talked about yet. And that was a training academy. So very early on, when I, as soon as I got to Uganda, I, we realized that uh, human capital was probably the biggest challenge that we faced. And actually, other than financing, human capital was, was the biggest uh, challenge. And that this was something that not only we were facing, but so were so many other solar companies out there. And I had the opportunity to, uh, to participate in a workshop that was organized by the German development agency, GIZ. They're kind of the USAID of, of Germany. And they, we went to a conference in South Africa where I helped develop out this concept into a training academy idea. And I was on the plane coming back to Uganda. And I was like, wow, like this really is like a, a training academy. Like this is something that can help us, help a lot of companies, but we have no idea what we're doing. <gasps> We've never run a training academy before. And this is where things kind of come full circle because somebody that I had met during my city year experience, her name is Anya Zuzek. She was still in New York at the time. She was getting her, finishing her master's from Columbia in education. And she had wanted to go into like refugee education. And I, she and I had recently reconnected. And long story short, we ended up roping her in to move to Uganda to end up starting this training academy project within Village Energy. Wow, city year coming back through. Things come full circle. So she built, she comes with you. So she joins you guys. Yes. Okay. And we end up developing out this concept of a traveling academy. So it goes into rural areas, trains the youth as solar technicians or sales agents, and then helps get them placed at solar companies who are hiring in that area. And so we ended up getting funding from. Well, they were called Philips, like the bulb company, 
and then it split off and the Phillips fault division ends up being renamed to Signify. So now it's Signify. So Signify Foundation ended up funding our pilot to uh, launch this training academy. And in 2018, we ended up splitting that into its own organization so that we could more easily work with other solar companies without a conflict of interest. And so that is how Enlight was born. Amazing. Okay. So, so now it's called Enlight Institute. Yeah. And you are leading that now. I have been. Okay. So <laughs> uh, not, not now, but I, for a while. So basically um, Anya Abu and I um, were, um, were the board members when we launched this. And um, we decided to incorporate it as a for-profit for a few reasons, but large and story short, because we realized that um, this is something that could be revenue generating if we can deliver value, particularly for the companies who would end up paying us, um, uh, because this is all these companies face this as their challenge. And so we said, okay, if it doesn't work out, we'll just like convert it to an NGO and, and get donor funding. But let's see if we can make a viable model out of this that can, can help the youth, but also help these companies. And so we ended up running a bunch of pilots and we were, we were getting youth trained in place. It just wasn't very sustainable. We also realized that some things were easier to train for than others. Um, it's, we realized that it, it, training solar technicians sounds like very sexy, like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll train a youth from a village to be a solar technician. But number one, the, they still need technical school. They, they, they still need to go to a vocational institute to get training mm -hmm. in you know, electricity and, and things like that to actually, and then they need an apprenticeship on the job. And we weren't as able to be a part of that entire process. Um, but one thing that we did realize was huge potential was no matter where, what it was, whether um, there were sales agents, technicians, managers, there were a lot of um, need for interpersonal skills, um, leadership skills, um, people management skills. Those are the things that were really lacking and mm -hmm. professionalism. And so a lot of the softer stuff. Yeah. And so we ended up focusing a lot on that. And we ended up developing a coaching curriculum, which we launched right before COVID, but has seen a lot of uptake. And we, we work with a number of solo companies now to provide one-on-one -on -one sales and leadership and management coaching for their staff. And this is, is it still just focused in Uganda or are you in other countries? Right now we are just in Uganda, although we've had organization, at least one organization has flown team members, like engineers from West Africa to Uganda to go through a week-long training with us. So okay. we're focused on Uganda. So we're now doing sales coaching um, and we've seen amazing results and the companies want, are, are keeping adding more people to get trained by us. And we have so many testimonials of people who are just transformed because this is the first time that they're getting like critical feedback in a safe space. Because mm -hmm. the culture in Uganda is like, you get hired and you're expected to do your job immediately. And if you don't perform, you get fired immediately. There's like very little trust. And mm -hmm. so you can't really admit to your boss that you may not know how to do something. You are afraid to accept criticism because you think that it's just gonna lead you down a path to getting fired. And so you don't have that safe space where you can really admit, I don't really know how to do this and I need help. And so having, bringing in an external coach to work with them every other week to be like, okay, you know, working with management, they've identified that these are your areas of gaps. Do you agree? Okay, let's work on a plan together. Let's put it into practice and let's check in every couple of weeks. That's providing them the opportunity for them to really understand, okay, this is, this is how I need to change. Yeah. How many solar companies are there that are working or operating in Uganda? There's over a hundred that are registered. Um, really? Yeah, it's a okay. lot. But not all of them are currently active. Um, I know COVID has really hurt a lot of businesses. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure at this point, but there's dozens. Dozens okay. of companies are still active of varying sizes. Um, some of them are, you know, divisions of multinationals. Some of them are, you know, mom and pop shops. But uh, I think if you go to the Uganda Solar Energy Association, there, there's over 100 members. Hmm. Well, that's great that there's that much focus on solar or interest yeah. in solar there. Yeah, there is. And so the other thing that happened, and so when COVID hit, um, 
things got really tricky. So by that time, I had actually relocated to New York. So Anya, who was kind of running the ground as like COO, she was running the show in Uganda and I was flying back and forth. And I'd relocated because just to be a little bit closer to family and um, also, you know, working a lot more with some of our donors and funders who are more based in um, Europe and a little bit in the United States too. And then COVID hit and basically um, I couldn't go to Uganda and my co-founder couldn't leave and we couldn't really operate very well. We mm-hmm. still managed to do like Zoom coaching. Like we were still like trying to do it, but like things are really becoming untenable from an organizational standpoint. So um, we ended up making the decision that, you know, we really need to accelerate the transition of Enlights uh, to more local leadership, somebody who is going to be in Uganda for the long term. And so another acumen fellow and a very dear friend of mine, uh, Martha Osiro. So she had actually been in my cohort at Acumen. And then she's an incredible woman. She is born in Kenya, spent, I think, 15 or 20 years in the United States, got her MBA here, and then ended up coming back to Uganda and worked in healthcare management. And so, um, and, and so she was helping to run um, the Aga Khan clinics in Uganda, the Aga Khan uh, University Hospital in Nairobi is one of the preeminent hospitals in East Africa, and they're building one in, in Kampala right now. And she did a lot of work to help secure the land for that. And she ended up trans- transitioning into working with Signify Foundation to support um, all the donor donees of Signify Foundation Fund in Uganda, including Village Energy and Enlight. So she was already kind of supporting us. And then she ended up coming in to take over as executive director. And that started in January of 2021. Mm-hmm. And Martha's just been incredible. She took over and basically laid out a new vision that focused on saying, hey, we actually really need to become a vocational institute ourselves." And she has managed to procure 10 acres of land and so Enlight has now become a full-fledged training institute. Wow. Is this beyond solar or is it still focused beyond on? Beyond solar. Okay. Beyond solar. So we've set wow. up like a, and she managed to get the title to the land. So we've set up like uh, a new, you know, just new school organization with its own board and everything. And so, uh, yeah, we have 10 acres of land and it's not just solar. It's going to be offering class, it already offers classes in a variety of stuff from hairdressing to auto mechanic. Um, I think there's a nursing program in the works and um, we're also building sports facilities. And so we recently hosted like a soccer coach training program um, for Ugandan soccer coaches um, just in the last uh, month. And so, yeah, it's a much bigger vision now than just solar, even though solar is still part of it. So it's amazing to see how and my vision continues to evolve. Yeah. And I mean, still going back to the core of the human capital challenge that and problem that you saw. Yeah, absolutely. And I think doing things that, you know, we never thought would even be possible to really involve ourselves going back to the real base of the value chain, uh, not value chain, um, the career development chain. So going back to actually working with the youth to get the core skills that they need. And then eventually they'll get hired by companies and then they can also continue to benefit from Enlight coaching. So we're kind of establishing ways to help the youth from the entire length of their career development from when they're fresh out of high school and they're like, I just wanna learn the core skills that I need all the way through that, hey, now that I'm an employee, I need to continue my skill development. And so Mm -hmm. by us being able to chart the the youth's development throughout a multi-year process, you know, we can help figure out, you know, what are things that we're teaching them in the first year at the vocational school that will end up mattering four or five years down the road once they're establishing their career. And so you're still involved in all of this. Yeah. So I'm still at the board level of both organizations. Um, I'm still president of Enlight because we um, were actually established in the United States, um, okay. although all the operations are in Uganda. But okay. I very much consider myself at, at the board level. At, at the end of the day, it's, it's Martha and Waringa who are running the shows for the respective organizations, and I'm just here to support them as best I can. It seems like you're 
helping support into a lot more growth. So that's fantastic. One of the things I'm proudest of is that we were able to transition these organizations to new leadership. And those organizations are still going years later. And I think that leadership transition is when a lot of organizations founder. But I think the, path, the fact that we were able to successfully transition that, um, I'm, I'm really happy about. And it's a big relief. Awesome. And so do you think you'll stay on with Enlight as president a while longer? Or you do you have another, another vision for, for the next step already? Uh, so for me, you know, I'm... I'm kind of in a, a period of retrenchment. Um, I think uh, I'm not ready to get into my next startup just yet. I, <laughs> I'm now actually doing digital marketing consulting. Um, so uh, one of our first investors in Village Energy, he started, a, um, he started a few businesses and one of them is a digital marketing company called Hive Digital that's based out of North Carolina. So I came on board um, two and a half years ago, um, starting part-time and now pretty much full-time. And I work with, um, on digital marketing efforts with a, with a few different startups, um, a subset of our clients. And that's really interesting for me because I am able to apply a lot of the tactical things I learned at Google around like how to build an ad account and all the data stuff. And so I can do all the very technical things that I was doing 10, 12 years ago, but I can combine that with a lot of the more strategic marketing stuff like, well, how do we figure out pricing? How do we figure out customer journey? Um, how do we align our marketing with you know, our target audience? And so a lot of those more strategic level conversations um, I'm having with our clients right now. So for me, it's, it's really fulfilling to be able to take these lessons and apply them uh, to other car- startups uh, in a way that's a little bit more stable financially and, and also geographically. Yeah. That's awesome. Jay, you've had, you've done so much um, over your career and I know you're only like just getting started. So it's really remarkable. Thank you. Yeah. I, at the end of the day, you know, it's such a cliche where it like takes a village, but at the end of the day, like I, I really do feel like these organizations and everything that happens, it's a lot like a marathon relay race. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't start Village Energy, but for a period of time, you know, I was one of its stewards to, to kind of help point in a certain direction. And at some point it was someone else's turn to kind of take over. So um, I do feel like, you know, that's going to continue to happen throughout my career where, you know, I step in where it's needed for a period of time and then, okay, it's time to move on. So mm-hmm. I expect that to continue. It's good to know as a leader, when it is time to step away or when it's a handoff can help take something to the next level. I think that that is a sign of a very good leader. Yeah, I, I'd say that that is, I, I, think it, I think it takes a real sense of discipline. Like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these startups are like your baby. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you really, you devote your everything to it. And so you have to have enough investment to be willing to do that, but also enough detachments to be willing to like be self-aware that, hey, maybe I'm not the right person to continue leading this organization. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's mentally quite tough, but I think once you kind of embrace the duality of that, um, it's really freeing and liberating. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Jay, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this incredible journey with me. I would love to switch over to our end of podcast questions, knowing that you have an incredibly busy schedule and appreciate it all the time that you've already spent with me today. Mm-hmm. So you are illuminating in <laughs> through some of the soul you're putting in, um, but through, you know, your career path um, and what you've done in the communities that you've worked, but tell me somebody who illuminates in your life or that you admire for how they illuminate. Yeah. So you know, when I would be going to Uganda and I'd be flying around to different conferences, I would frequently go through London and I would stay uh, with a, a cousin of mine. And he is a bit older um, and he's been born and raised in London and he's been taking care of his mother um, who has been his best friend, but she also has dementia and has been cognitively declining for the last five, 10 years. Like now to the point that she doesn't really speak anymore. And the way that 
you know, on the surface, you know, people look at me and they're like, oh, wow, you're like flying around the world. You do all these cool things and you're getting impressed and all this stuff. And, you know, on the surface, like his life, you know, seems very, you know, mundane. Like he, he, he works as a government lawyer, uh, nine to five, stays home a lot. Doesn't really leave the house very much these days because he has to take care of his mother. But I think the work he's doing is just as important and in many ways, even more incredible what he's doing than what I'm doing. And just the way that he has kind of embraced it and accepted it and is at peace with, you know, the trade-offs and the sacrifices he's had to make. I, I think every time I, I see him, I'm just in awe. And I do think that these sort of quiet acts of good, I mean, that's what I think powers the world. And mm -hmm. his story has been replicated millions, if not billions of times around the world where people are just quietly going about their day, trying to love and do as much as they can. And I, and, and then for me, I think that that's actually in many ways, the most important work we can do. Like not all of us have the ability to be able to quit our job and, and go somewhere else or, 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 or try to take on a leadership organization. I know there's a lot of privilege that came with me being able to do what I did. In fact, one of the reasons I did what I did was because I could, um, mm -hmm. you know, because if I didn't do it, then who else could? Um, but um, I do think that at the end of the day, you know, that he's somebody who I, I continue to be in awe with. I just love that example. And I love what you said about those acts of good and acts of love or what power of the world. It's so true. Yeah. And, um, I think a lot of people say, you know, oh, how can the world get any worse right now? We have a war, we have a pandemic. And my answer is like, honestly, if, if you think the world sucks right now, imagine if people stop doing this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. then, then the world would really be bad. But I think to the extent that we're able to hold the world together is because of stuff like this and, and just this daily thing. And so I, I, I always take my head off everywhere in the world I go. And even, you know, when I try to emulate that in my own life, like it's the work that that's been done behind the scenes without any hope of of law, wider recognition that I think is this is the critical stuff. I love that. Okay, tell me, give me a book recommendation. Uh, have you heard of Untethered Soul by Michael Singer? No. It's incredible. It's changed my life. Um, you know, he and a lot, and I've met a lot of people who say the same thing about it. But there's there's other books out there too. Um, but basically what it, what it comes back down to is like dealing with that voice inside your head. Why do we act the way that we act? Why do we feel what we feel? And, and, and it kind of gets to the heart of that. Um, so one analogy that, because, you know, as I'm taking a step back and I'm kind of looking at like, oh, like why is, why, why is it that people are so angry at each other? Why are people so fearful? Why are people so greedy? Why are people doing all these things? Because that's the thing, you know, we can go ahead and colonize Mars or whatever we're going to do. But if we bring the same impulses from Earth, then I'm not sure things are going to be much better. Mm -hmm. And I think an analogy that makes a lot of sense is that, you know, um, what is trauma? I think you've probably heard a lot about trauma recently. Yep. So at the end of the day, trauma is just unprocessed emotion. And you don't have to go through a big experience. It, it doesn't have to be what we would call a traumatic experience in order to, ha to have emotions in with you. And a way that I would say uh, somebody or an analogy that I might give to somebody is that, you know, life, if life's like a movie, the emotions are like a soundtrack to whatever scene you happen to be in. So if there's a scene in a movie that is, sad, like the soundtrack's going to be sad. You should be sad. That, that's an appropriate response. And then the next scene might be a happy scene, a love scene. And then that scene should be happy. What happens is that sometimes we don't fully let the soundtrack from that scene fully play, either because it's so sad that we said, no, I don't want to feel this emotion. I want to block. I want to push it away. Or I'm in love with this emotion and I don't want to let it go. I don't want to move on to the next scene. So we take snippets of these sounds with us and they get stored in our body and you can call them some scars or emotional nuggets that even you can feel them in your muscles. Uh, if you go to any yoga class, we'll talk about this stuff. And 
what happens is that when you get, so you have these almost sell like a layer, like a, you put on sunglasses and you're viewing the world through these unprocessed bits of soundtrack. And then when an experience happens to remind you of these unprocessed emotions, those get triggered. Mm. And that's when you start, your heart starts racing and you feel really angry. Like, I don't know why I'm feeling so angry right now, but I'm feeling really angry or I'm feeling really stressed. And it's because of this. And so we just go around through life often accumulating these things. And that's what helps lead to us being so on edge with situations that we know, like, I know this isn't really scary, but why do I feel so scared? Or why do I feel so angry? And so this book has helped me to kind of understand like, okay, like this is what's happening here. And the way to kind of release them is to fully let that music play out. And, you know, one of my clients right now does like psychedelic therapy. And I know that's all the rage right now. I'm seeing this in TV shows. Like I've seen, just seen them. Uh, have you seen Severance? I have not. It's such a good show, but it also talks about that too. And so we just see it throughout in society that we all have this pent up trauma and we don't have a safe space for us to fully feel out these things that are these, these emotions that are trapped inside of us. And so um, so this book and, and other books are, uh, and then this is now my new rabbit hole is kind of diving into this world. I recently did a Vipassana meditation. So that also dealt with a lot of these things. This is this 10 day silent meditation that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think like, I think now the world is, we realize we're at a mental health crisis and we need to do something about it. So. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Okay. I'm very interested in to read this book. Thanks for sharing. Those are really powerful analogies. And my last question, Jay, what is your message for the world? I think my message for the world would be kind of a combination of the last two things. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, we feel like we're drowning, or at least I and everyone I know feels like we're drowning in bad news right now about situations we don't feel like we can do very much about. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be terrifying. It can lead to depression. It can lead to a lot of things. And I think understanding, you know, ourselves going within to understand that, hey, this stuff's hitting us externally and it's okay to feel stressed. It's okay to feel bad. But if we can create some distance between how we're feeling and how we're responding, go from reacting to responding. Um, that's really going to help us to create some space that allows us to understand what's really going on and will enable us to better just be kinder to other people and to do these quiet things. You know, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people talk about like affirmations, you know, whether or not they work, um, positive thinking, prayer, these sorts of things. And my, my sense is like, why shouldn't it work? Because at the end of the day, everything is a particle. Even atoms, this is pure science, can be broken down into particles. So your thoughts are fundamentally made out of the same particle waves that make up that chair that you're sitting in. And so I do think that one way that we can help the world is just by trying to help ourselves and try to help the people immediately around us. And just doing that, get into a place where you can feel a little bit better about all the stuff that's constantly bombarding us and understand, you know, what the sources of this are, um, then I think that that's going to help the world bit by bit. Jay, thank you so much for your words and for your inspiration and for walking us through your incredible journey. Can't wait to see what you do in the world as your life and your career go on. Friends, if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps other people hear about our show. Have a wonderful week.